Hi, I'm Max. Hi, I'm Julian, and welcome back to The Fly. This semester's getting hectic, isn't it? It definitely is. Midterms galore. But talking politics is a great distraction. On that note, on this episode of The Fly, we had the opportunity to interview Michael Ricci, former Deputy Communications Director for House Speaker John Boehner, and former Communications Director for Speaker Paul Ryan and Maryland Governor Larry Hogan. Mr. Ricci is a returning guest to The Fly, as we interviewed him nearly three years ago to talk about managing communications during a pandemic. In this interview, we discussed his start in speechwriting, his time with Speaker Ryan, and his thoughts on recent developments in Congress. Enjoy the interview. So welcome to the Fly Podcast at Georgetown. Um, so to start out, just um, tell us your story. Uh, how did you go from suburban New York uh, to becoming a speechwriter for high-ranking member of Congress? Uh, with intention. I, I always wanted to be a speechwriter uh, growing up. I, um, I studied it in school. I wrote for the college paper. I, uh, I did that. Sound, you know, I did the thing you do where I put all my stuff in the car uh, and moved down here. Didn't really have a job at the time, and I just uh, kept applying for jobs, especially with uh, that involved uh, writing and speech writing, until I finally landed on one. And my first, um, my first uh, consistent writing job was a speechwriter in the 2006 cycle for the National Republican Congressional Committee, and. Uh, I had a cubicle, I'll never forget it, I had a cubicle right next to the refrigerator. So I literally could not walk straight out of my cubicle. I would have walked smack right into the refrigerator. And because it was the main refrigerator for the floor, basically, uh, there was just a lot of foot traffic all day, especially in the middle of the day around lunchtime. So, uh, but that was uh, an exciting uh, an exciting time because I was writing for, not just for a uh, member of House leadership, but I was also writing on you know every house race. So... Uh, it, it's really where I, I uh, got my start, and I just worked my way up the uh, House leadership ladder um, year by year, cycle by cycle, uh, until I got the got noticed by somebody, and then Minority Leader John Boehner's office, and I kind of kind of went from there. So it's what I always wanted to do, and I just kept at it and kept trying to get better at it until, uh, well, still to this day, uh, it's something that I try to get better at. Can you like talk a little bit about what drew you to speech writing and like do you how do you feel it fits into public service work? Well, from a personal perspective, I was definitely what you would classify as an introvert growing up. So I think writing uh, allowed me to be uh, be more expressive. So uh, I'm pretty sure I gave the speech at my elementary school graduation. I definitely did at my high school graduation. Uh, I just liked uh, it was just something that came to me uh, naturally uh, I liked giving uh, toasts at family events and, and things like that um, so on a personal level it just it, it worked for me as a I wasn't a big talker uh, you know you meet people people in communications they're they're great talkers and they're they're, they're good uh, spinners and I was just I came at it as a good writer and as a, as a storyteller and I think that uh, it has actually never been more important than it is now because so much of writing and speech writing is about uh, it's about telling a story and about uh, connecting with people. 
uh, in a way that uh, no AI technology uh, can, and, or at least not yet, I should say. I should put a big caveat on that. Um, and uh, the ability to persuade, to make an argument, to, uh, to have a human moment, to connect with people, to try and transcend the politics of the moment, uh, there's still uh, an important place for that. Uh, obviously, you know, the day-to-day -day of things, like any occupation maybe, uh, you know, a lot of what you write is sort of part of the day-to-day -day rhythms of government and, and, um, and, and that kind of work, but it's really about uh, those impactful moments when you have the opportunity on a big stage, and uh, I think that's what every, anyone who goes into speech writing uh, really lives for. Uh, anytime I talk to people who want to get into speech writing, I really encourage them to do it in public service if you can. You know, everybody needs a, everybody needs a writer in some sense, a company, a trade association, a, uh, you know, PR firms. Everybody needs writers, but the chance to do it in public service and to be in that arena, and there's just nothing like it. So for anybody listening who's thinking about it, I really encourage you to, to do, do it in public service if you can for a time. And um, this sort of interacts with what you brought up um, in terms of AI. We haven't seen AI take over political speech writing duties yet. Um, but certainly technology evolved a lot um, over your tenure as a speech writer and as a communicator in politics. Um, so how did you adapt your writing to different mediums? Um, what was that experience like? Well, the it's a great question because I think it's what uh, it was really, that was really the arc of my career was that when I started on Capitol Hill, we started with these things called that we just, they were called blogs, and uh, we did a few posts a day, and then uh, I think Facebook came along, then Twitter, uh, and you had to. It was interesting because you had to adapt and you had to learn how to break your message down. And we used to, in Speaker Boehner's office especially, anytime we wrote anything, a press release or whatever, we would also include you know here's the draft Twitter post here's the draft Facebook post and I thought it was a great challenge and the beauty of doing it in those different uh, formats is you can uh, you can use analytics to see maybe what worked and what didn't um, in a way that you necessarily can't in, in, in maybe like just the main press release form you could look at open rates for your press release but you know, with analytics, uh, you know, did it help when I used a photo? Did it help when I used a video? Did it help when I used this news article as opposed to that one? So I think that uh, the value of being able to uh, adapt your writing and to reach more people and, uh, you know, some people they would rather write in longer form, no question. Uh, some people, it gets, you know, they're digital, that's their job, you know, 24 seven is digital. Uh, I'm not a big believer in that kind of siloing. I think it's good to be, uh, to be verse and to have skill set in, in all the different forms of writing. But you should also use, you should also use technology almost as a way to, kind of, not crowdsource, but you know it might inform the speeches you write, the longer form things you write, seeing what works, what doesn't. Uh, it's an interest. It's an interesting. It's it's you know it's, it's ever evolving and. Sometimes a word enters the lexicon. I always use the example of wokeness in the last year or so, and I'm not really sure what it means, but it does really well on social media. And certain, uh, I think Governor DeSantis is somebody who uses it a lot, and different people use it in different contexts. And part of 
studying or doing communications is to see how that works. But uh, it's just a word that resonates with people. But I'm not, you know, it's one of those words that we're kind of constantly trying to define. So that's kind of a, that's kind of why you want to look at um, analytics and, and how things are performing. Yeah, definitely. And I guess one of the last questions we have about speech writing specifically before shifting to another topic is about like your process for writing. Do you procrastinate and write it late or is it always something you do in the morning? Uh, I always I always say that it depends on the user and by the user I mean the principal, the person you're writing for. Um, Governor Hogan had a very uh, talented speechwriter who and one of the reasons for that was that she had mastered the process of writing for the governor, the process of collecting the information on the front end, doing the research, of knowing the history of his, especially when you're the governor, you give so many speeches a week, so knowing the previous history and then um, putting together a product by whatever deadline. Now, in different offices, you have different deadlines, and, and, and I know you understand this as students. Um, in the speaker's office, the deadlines were, there's so much going on, there's not a lot of time for them to look at things. The deadline, I mean, sometimes you could send something up to the speaker 24, 48 hours ahead of time. I don't think that's really normal. I'm sure it's a, there's a probably a longer lead time, especially for uh, governors. Um, but I think the best thing is to get as much, uh, I, I alluded to it earlier in my answer, but to get as much front-end input as possible. You should never start with a blank page, whether it's research or something. Uh, you should have some some nuggets, some some background, something that you start from and you shape it from. Some speechwriters build middle out. Some people, I used to, when I was on Capitol Hill, I was really good at writing the ends of speeches, the close, and then the whole time I kind of sit there and wonder, like, how am I going to, all right, I have to get to this now, 15 minutes later. So um, I, I don't think that it's, I wouldn't call it procrastination, but the problem is that you're, especially, you know, in this environment, you're, you're focused on it sometimes on so many things that you might just, you know, because it's sometimes the time, you know, it's the following week, it's the following week after that, you might, uh, you might not think of it as a priority and then you might get uh, behind the gun. But one of the reasons I kind of, uh, it's funny you ask this, because one of the reasons I kind of retired from speech writing was because uh, it, it, you know, I, I kind of suffered for my soup, so to speak. It was, um, it could be a lonely art at times. And uh, there's this great quote by um, the writer of Breaking Bad, where he quoted it, uh, writers kind of pass around, which is the best feeling for a writer is the feeling of having written something when you're done with it. Uh, and you can just move on from it and, and wash your hands of it. The in-between, the process, uh, can be very taxing and, and very challenging, but it's also obviously uh, very rewarding once you, be, once you master that process. But everybody's process is different, and uh, I always encourage uh, speech writers to, especially when they go somewhere new, to kind of learn the process and then try to adapt uh, accordingly. Um, so talking about your time with Speaker Boehner and then Speaker Paul Ryan, so the Republican Party has obviously evolved a lot over that time. Um, and you, in many ways, had a front seat to that. So how have you seen the Republican Party evolve, and uh, how do you think it continues to evolve today? Yeah, um, you know, my time on the Hill started right before, uh, around uh, this, the end of the second uh, term of President Bush 43, and 
Uh, I'm a big believer in, I actually think it was the financial crisis and uh, TARP, the bailout package, that really um, lit the fuse here and unleashed this great, um, this great, um, obviously also the Great Recession was after that, but also the sort of great unrest and people uh, really felt like they weren't cut in on the deal, felt like they didn't have a seat at the table. And that uh, unrest, that restlessness began to uh, manifest itself first in the Tea Party. And that is really what I watched uh, evolve over the years. And it's the Tea Party then became, then the Freedom Caucus came up obviously during Speaker Boehner's time. And the issue for me as a communicator was sort of not knowing this, this target began to move. Was it the Tea by target, I just mean the, you know, who who was, what did this, what was this force and who, who, who led it? You know, at times was it Tea Party? Was it the Freedom Caucus? And then uh, obviously Trump came along and really gave it, uh, you know, kind of a, a leader, so to speak, uh, you know, one unifying leader. And, um, you know, it none of it, it, it honestly, you know, I lived through it. it. None of it really surprised me because I think that um, it it just watching our politics come apart like that, um, especially and as social media, you know, Speaker Boehner, uh, you mentioned Speaker Boehner, he always sort of talked about Rush Limbaugh and how Rush Limbaugh sort of ignited this era of radio, talk radio and how that people would listen to that and uh, you know, would, began to listen to that him and then other, you know, he kind of led the way for other hosts to come along. But as the media environment fragmented, people could go, not just choose their news, but almost choose their outrage. And as they were able to do that, um, it became harder and harder, you know, when you're talking about being the speakership, being in the leadership of the party, it became harder and harder to have a unifying or clarifying message because so much of the landscape was fragmented and there was just these pools of outrage everywhere you looked. And yes, you could leverage that outrage at times, no question, but uh, there's always, uh, but then those people, then you'll see that, okay, well then you solved, you, 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 you you dipped into this pool of outrage, now here's another one for you to, to dip into. And, and so it just keeps building on itself. And you uh, you saw this materialize over the course of the last decade with different government shutdown battles, obviously Speaker Boehner's speakership and to Speaker Ryan's speakership. And it just, uh, it, again, I always think about it as sort of a, a coming apart of our politics. And um, it in real time, it, it was hard to study it or to be fascinated by it as opposed, as opposed to frustrated by it. But uh, I think this uh, evolution will, as you, you asked about how it's still evolving, and I think it will continue to evolve for some time. Um, I think we or historians will look back on it and sort of hopefully, you know, it will find a resolution of some sort, but we'll look back on this 10 to 15 year period and, and, and kind of and study it. But um, it really will depend, in, I think, in large part on uh, who the standard bearer for the party is in 2024. I think parties especially are defined by that, who their standard bearer is. And so uh, I think this will be kind of a, uh, an ongoing battle that uh, continues over the next uh, couple of years. I, 
I try to see the upside of it that, um, you know, there are uh, important issues for the party and for conservatism to stand for. Uh, we just have to find a way to, uh, to kind of come together and, as I said, from a communications perspective, figure out, figure all that out amid the, the different, uh, amid the fragmented uh, media landscape. No, thanks for that answer. And um, how did you manage communication between um, Speaker Ryan and Trump during the beginning part of Trump's term? Um, we, we, well, it's a good way to put it because, so there were several levels, right? There was communications between the Speaker and the President themselves, and I, I do believe they talked regularly, especially in the beginning. Um, there was communication on the staff level, um, but one, we tr I think the, for our part, we had hoped, we had thought we would be able to manage it the way you would between any speaker's office and administration, where you meet regularly, you coordinate, and, you know, the Trump White House was, you know, and it wasn't so much about how they were outsiders or they were new to government. It was just that they um, they put a premium on a lot of their own internal fights. I mean, every night you would go on Twitter and just see who was leaking against who. And, you know, so much of their time had to be, it sounds like, so much of their time was spent with their own internal communications issues. So trying to coordinate, you know, an initiative, messaging for, you know, try to get that megaphone of the White House on the same page as, the, as what we had on the hill was always uh, an uphill battle and I just don't think it's something that they really put a premium on uh, I think they and I get that you know the president was largely elected based on his Twitter account and uh, you know his own brand but um, there's so many different uh, levers you have to pull in the mechanics of governing and communicating and they just, it just something wasn't something that they took uh, a great interest in. And uh, you can see that in the fact that we did all that work and then we lost the majority. President Trump came out and basically said, ah, eh, maybe it's not so bad. I could always work with the Democrats. And I think for those of us who had worked hard over the previous two years in unified government to, uh, you know, to make things work, obviously that was uh, discouraging uh, to say the least. But, um, so you, you manage those communications and those relationships at, at multiple levels. And, uh, you know, there obviously were some positives. We did pass a major tax reform bill. Um, but, you know, it sounds silly now looking back on it, but we, like anybody else, there were days that we too would sit and wait to see what he would tweet about a bill or about something that was about to go to the floor for a vote in a matter of hours, because there were. Uh, members of Congress who would hang on, uh, you know, his opinion on a bill, which to some extent makes sense. It was just the the frantic nature of things that uh, was was difficult to manage. For sure, and I think um, just like a follow up to that, um, you kind of mentioned how President Trump's communication style, like, largely relied on Twitter and social media, just transforming the way of communications like can you comment at all about how that transformed like the work you do and the work you see in politics and also just general thoughts on Trump's communication style in this new age well they 
I think what it, I think what it did, uh, and I feel strongly about this, is it sort of paved the way for communicators, press secretaries, people coming up, especially on the Hill, to sort of just try to copy that and to become Twitter jockeys themselves. And so a generation of communicators came up not really knowing the nuts and bolts of day-to-day communications. And I hear from reporters all the time about, you know, so-and-so tweeted at them but has never returned their call or had a coffee with them or built any kind of relationship. Uh, So much of what we do in communications is about relationships and building good faith, whether it's with reporters, with editors, with producers, bookers. And if you're going to skip all that, uh, you know, and then go on Twitter and be outraged by this or that story, you know, it, it's a it's a difficult proposition. But I get why that trend happened, because the president, President Trump, that is, you know, he was sort of, his, his brand was tweeting and he wasn't doing a lot of the traditional communications that you do. And so I think it gave license to others to, including members of Congress, uh, who would mostly focus on, you know, 15 years ago, sounds so quaint now, but we used to almost monitor members of Congress who would, you know, tweet from their own account, not monitor, but keep track because it was such a, such a short list. And now it feels like there are so many of them that do, and you wonder how much time they're spending on. It almost feels like there are some who, you know, they'd rather, you know, build their Twitter follower list than build support for a bill or learn, you know, the mechanics of getting a bill through committee or getting something to the floor. Uh, and again, it goes back to what I said about outrage machine and, and that incentive structure. But uh, I just think it it almost devalued, even though there's more content, more communications, it almost devalued sort of the art of communicating and governing. Now at the same time, to your second question, obviously uh, Trump campaign and the Trump operation between his own tweeting and then a lot of what they did on the campaign side, leveraging Facebook, this is something I'm gonna, gonna have a session on in my uh, discussion group on communications this semester, uh, it did change the way that not only people would use these use these different mediums, but also even the way you would interact, even the interaction between, and you've seen this play out um, with some of the release of some of Twitter's internal documents, but it also led to this cottage industry of communications between people in you know, the campaign side and the government side and people inside these operations, inside Twitter, inside Facebook. And that wasn't really, you didn't really hear of that until the last five years or so. And how much is that sort of battle uh, and people trying to work, I guess work the refs is how I would say it. Uh, How much has that battle really changed uh, the dynamic of communications? And again, instead of simply trying to advance an argument uh, you know, there was, a, there, was a, there was a hearing last week about Twitter where some members of Congress just went on about how much their own ability to tweet was blocked and it was, it was so, you know, self-involved. And again, it, you know, you, you're going to live and die by this uh, as opposed to trying to 
again build out the more build out a full repertoire of, of communications so uh, I think there are certainly advances that and like anything else we should study what especially Trump's campaign did in 2016 um, but I think it just it just leaves out a huge piece of what uh, our jobs are all about so with your experience working in the House and working with Speaker Ryan, um, we're interested in knowing your perspective on the recent speakership battle with Kevin McCarthy. Well, first, I thought it was extraordinary. And I thought that, um, and not just because people on C-SPAN could see uh, could see that the, the mics were hot and people could see people arguing on the floor and all that, but so many times... Um, a dear friend of mine would tell me with these battles on Capitol Hill, he would use the quote that, you know, the battle is over uh, before it's fought. And so many times on Capitol Hill, the outcomes are predictable. You know, this bill is going to pass if it goes to the floor. Very rarely, once in a great while, a bill will go down on the floor, which so rarely happens. Uh, generally in Washington, the outcomes are, are known. We're sort of seeing that now with the debt limit, where everyone sort of agrees that we shouldn't default on our debt. We just have to actually get to that point and, and and get to the end of the battle. So the speakership, and I did live through, uh, I lived through this a couple times, uh, just Speaker Boehner's speakership where there were sort of these minor revolts. That was, there was nothing compared to what Speaker McCarthy went through. But I, there was a member of Congress who kind of got criticized because he said that maybe it was a healthy thing for the party. But I think there actually might be something to that in the sense that, you know, at least there was an open debate, a process, uh, People could see it, take from it what they will. Uh, so many of these things, these things happen behind closed doors, and I know that's another bone of contention, what, what, what agreements he and his team may have made. But uh, I just thought it was fascinating to observe. And I think for him, you know, before the State of the Union last week, he talked about the debt limit and about uh, the importance of compromising in government. And it, it, the, I, my ears perked up because that's not a word uh, Speaker Boehner or Speaker Ryan could have used comfortably. Uh, so it says to me that Speaker McCarthy does to some extent have the trust of his, uh, of the right flank, uh, so to speak. And I think that that will be an interesting, uh, interesting dynamic to observe going forward. So I thought it was, you know, I, I don't, I don't get the vapors as much as other people do about, oh, you know, we're losing decorum. It's, it's a spectacle. You know, look, it's this is the process. It's the process laid out in the rules of the House. They had the process. It was done legitimately. He was willing to stand there and go through it for 14, 15 rounds. Um, yes, you'd love it to be clean, happen in one vote, and move on. But, you know, he's the speaker. And, you know, that is uh, it's a great responsibility. Uh, it's something he's very familiar with, having been a part of leadership for a while. And, uh, you know, and even t I saw a survey of down a survey of K Street or something where um, most people don't think he'll even make it for two years. So, uh, you know, for them, I think it's about proving uh, it's, a, it's a great pastime in Washington, trying to prove the, the critics and the naysayers wrong. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I thought it was again, I, you know, you'd never in, in real time. It was it was it was grueling to watch and, and difficult to watch. But, you know, I, I think that. It's like, um, you can ask about this, but it also made me think, I thought about this again when President Biden was there for the State of the Union, and yes, he was being heckled, and again, 
I know it's it, yes, they shouldn't obviously you shouldn't you shouldn't be shouting at anybody and, and you know in, in that situation and, and, and be being disruptive and, and what they were saying. But part of the problem with our politics is that it's it can be boring at times and predictable. So I thought that, you know, it at least there's some back and forth. I mean it's not a debate obviously, it's a state of the union, but I, I thought the back and forth was kinda was kind of interesting. And again, it's just when you see these things happen, you, you should try to take from it you know what does it say about our our politics and about the process itself and so i i uh i'll be interested to see how it plays out yeah definitely and um i think at this point we're ready to move on to our lightning round oh great so basically in this round um we're just like asking like shorter questions like more like broad um general topics and just looking for like a quick couple word or sentence Sure. Answer. So I think the first thing, um, as we kind of discussed last time, both of us are from Long Island. So we're wondering, what's the most underrated thing about Long Island that people that aren't from there don't know? The wineries, especially on the North Fork. Beautiful, beautiful, uh, beautiful wineries out there. You know, I know the Hamptons are the hot ticket that out that way, but I encourage folks to go to the North Fork and check out the wineries there. You mentioned to us earlier um, that you're a runner. Um, so what's your favorite race? The George Washington Parkway 10-Miler is a beautiful race, and it goes from Mount Vernon, and it goes, this is one of the reasons why it's my favorite, it generally goes downhill to Mount to, to Old Town. Beautiful race. Wow, that sounds really nice. And um, given that we are, we are a podcast and um, you work in communications, like, do you have any favorite podcasts, either, whether political ones or not, or just politically geared ones? I, you know, in my free time, I mostly listen to sports podcasts. I, uh, um, I like NPR's How I Built This. Uh, I think it's actually helpful to listen to things maybe outside your wheelhouse. Um, so um, NPR's How I Built This is the one that comes to mind. Uh, who's someone you don't agree with politically, uh, but still admire their work? Hmm. Well, I'm very interested in uh, Josh Shapiro, who just took office in Pennsylvania, the new governor, Democratic governor of Pennsylvania. Um, Jared Polis of Colorado. I'm always interested when uh, people who... Uh, they don't subscribe. They do things that are a little off the beaten, off the beaten path of, of their party. And uh, I enjoy studying uh, what different, especially the messaging of different uh, politicians. So those two come to mind. As especially when I was in the state house, I tried to look at what other governors are doing, and those two come to mind. As you know, I uh, I don't know if I admire them yet, but I, I, I admire what they're trying to do and trying to be a little outside their party's orthodoxy and, and try to do things different and maybe it'll work maybe it won't but it's worth uh, it's certainly worth studying yeah well thank you so much for interviewing with us today thank you thanks for listening to the fly you can find us on social media at the fly georgetown if you enjoyed our conversation make sure to subscribe to the fly and leave a five-star rating on spotify apple Podcasts, or soundcloud our researchers are kelvin doe Zan Hawk, Robin Wang, Kenneth Jackson, and Julian Zeitlinger. Our communications team is Andrea Smith and Austin Culpepper. 
Our production team is Max Paley and Will Hayes. Emeritus Managing Director is Sam Kehoe. Original theme music is composed by Aidan Ang and Bella Carlucci. And I'm Fiona Gallagher, Managing Director of the Pod. The Fly is brought to you by the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service and is made possible by the McCourt School of Public Policy. Thanks so much for listening and fly with you soon.